Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch, and you're listening to In These Times. I have the high honor of speaking with Eve Barlow today and asking her about the price that she paid for defending Israel. Originally from Scotland and now based in L.A., Eve was one of the top music journalists in the world until it all came crashing down. It was one tweet, and it was it sent this sort of bat signal out to a lot of my uh, industry to say, uh-oh, she's not one of us. She's not just sitting down and keeping her mouth shut. In May 2020, four days after George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police, Eve tweeted, quote, Woke up to see that synagogues in L.A. have been graffitied during the riots with the words Free Palestine and F Israel. How dare you bring the Jewish nation and community into the killing of black American lives? Unquote. But courage comes at a cost. Since then, she has faced a barrage of anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic invective. Editors stopped responding to her emails. Friends stopped returning her calls. Eve was effectively canceled. Now, looking back, do you have any regrets? No, zero. And I always say that. And I mean that truthfully. A year later, as Gaza launched rocket attacks against Israel and Israel responded, Eve spoke up again. Today, you're going to hear an inspiring story of bravery and courage, and you will walk away knowing what you can do to fight anti-Semitism. Eve Barlow, welcome to In These Times. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here, too, and it's, I'm, I'm excited for our conversation. Let me ask you, uh, just to start, did you start out wanting to be a courageous soul? Wow. Um, I don't know if one does start out wanting to be courageous. I didn't set out to to be this kind of fighter, warrior person. I think it would probably be more accurate to say that I got the call to do this work. And it wasn't the first time I had a call to do work that equated to something that requires courage, but it was the time in which it spoke to the deepest part of my soul. And it was the time in which the courage required was really the greatest because I know having been at the forefront of many of what you would perhaps call identity orientated fights, that fighting for your rights as a Jew is something of a, I don't want to say something of a poison chalice because I do not want to discourage people from doing it, but it is an anomaly in in respect to the fact that we live in times in which tribal warfare and identity politics have perhaps never been higher. And it's very much uh, part of the moral high ground to be fighting for a whole load of causes, but not for Jewish people to live uh, freely in society with the same kind of security and respect as everyone else. So this is the one that, for me personally, requires the most courage. We never know what our destiny actually is until uh, we face it. I didn't expect to be a rabbi either. Uh, Mm -hmm. I didn't start out that way. Some people probably don't know your full background. So you were born and raised in Scotland. I was born and raised in Glasgow. There's a little quiet corner on the south side of Glasgow in which there's a vibrant Jewish community. And I grew up in that, in the bosom of that and with something more akin to sort of traditional Orthodox background. 
And Judaism was always an enormous part of my life. It was always something that I was hugely proud of, that I participated in on a daily basis. I grew up in a kosher household. I went to synagogue for every Shabbat and every High Holy Day. And I had a great affinity with Israel from being a small child. I was extremely fortunate to be traveling to Israel with my family. I wound up graduating from high school and I went to Manchester University in England to study law in 2004. I had eight hours of contact a week in the law school and the rest of my time was spent falling wildly in love with all sorts of music, whether that was, you know, in nightclubs or seeing bands and venues. Music really became, music was always a huge obsession of mine and I must have applied to 200 law firms and I didn't get any offers. And so I crawled back to my parents' house with my tail between my legs and to one look at my bookshelf, there was a collection of all of my favorite music magazines that were my Bibles when I was a teenager and all of my records and went downstairs and told my dad I was going to chase rock bands around the world for a living. <laughs> and um, one wound up somehow making that a reality. You become this superstar music journalist that's on in all of the major music journals. Yes, I do. I, it didn't happen overnight. It was really a toil and I made a lot of sacrifices. And that also required, I guess, a certain amount of courage. I lived between London and Glasgow. I would I, I was just picking up whatever shift work I could get at one of my favorite magazines down in London called Q. And I would go down there for two weeks. And by the age of 25, I wound up being the deputy editor of the New Musical Express or the NME. I mean, that was a dream. That was the, the pinnacle of everything and anything I could ever have dared to imagine. I left that role in London in 2014 and cast myself out here to Los Angeles and basically began a, an illustrious freelance career as a writer and editor and reporter. And yeah, I've had bylines in absolutely every title I could ever have, as I say, dared to dream of being in and interviewed some of the most incredible human beings. So you were on top of the world that you wanted to be part of. And then what happened to change the course of your life? So, so much happened. The pandemic happened and it slowed a lot of things down. But I think it also created a lot of tension. I don't think we're going to understand any of this for a while. But what I can identify right now is that during the pandemic, while people were struggling with work, while they were quarantined at home, while they were bored and scared and uncertain about when anything would ever be normal again, that people really retreated into themselves. And some people became more fearful and in isolation, the identity became stronger than perhaps their previous assimilation. And I think anything that could have happened in that time as a trigger was going to set people off against each other or create these storms online where we're really was the only place where we could truly remain connected to each other. I had already been advocating for Jewish people before the pandemic. That's when things started to become problematic for me because that, that bat that banged the hornet's nest, so to speak, you could argue, was the death of George Floyd, which then ricocheted into protests all over this country um, and around the world while people were trying to quarantine and it stoked the fires of a lot of wars of words and wars of action in public. You mean on everything or specifically uh, you were 
sensitive to attacks on Jews and on Israel. I think that we could say in a wider sense, people were on either side of a race debate in whichever avenue they existed in. And for me, as a Jewish person, I found myself suddenly um, in a really precarious spot when I took umbrage with the fact that during the first weekend of BLM protests in LA, that city halls were being vandalized. And I tweeted something about it. And I tweeted something that really shouldn't have garnered the reaction that it did. But because of that cultural moment in which everyone was keeping quiet and no, and people were really terrified of not just stating what they thought, but asking a question. If you get to a point in society where people are simply wanting to ask a question and feeling like they can't, that's really not okay. That's a sign, of, to me, of an unhealthy society. And so I put out this statement to say, listen, I'm all for challenging what is clearly systemic racism in this country, but you can't fight one form of hate with another form of hate. So why are people vandalizing Jewish places of worship while protesting that Black Lives Matter? That doesn't make Jewish people who want to be allies, you know, who have historically stood in the civil rights movement in the United States side by side with black and brown people. Do not make this an unsafe space for Jewish people who want to be allies in solidarity in this current moment. And what is this? Is this in a, in a tweet or a series of tweets? Or? It was one tweet and it was, it, it sent this sort of bat signal out to a lot of my uh, industry to say, uh-oh, <laughs> um, Okay, well, well, Eve Barlow is clearly not someone to be trusted. She's not one of us. She's not just letting this moment pass by and sit and sitting down and keeping her mouth shut. She's she said something that I think for a lot of people it was kind of like I don't understand why are you quote unquote centering yourself right now? As we know as Jews, it's never the time to talk about anti-Semitism. Eve, in May 2020, four days after George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police, you said you woke up to see that synagogues in LA have been graffitied. Quote, how dare you bring the Jewish community into the killing of black American lives? What did people find controversial in saying that synagogues shouldn't be attacked and degraded? I mean, why do people think that that's controversial at all? I can't really answer that question for you other than to say, to repeat some of the things that were said to me, which is you shouldn't be centering yourself at this time. Don't center Jews at this time. People, Black people are angry and they have a right to do what they want to express that anger. And then also there were people who fully believed the trope of, well, synagogues represent white power because Jews are white supremacists. So yes, it is the equivalent of attacking a, a capitalist company like a Breaking the windows of an urban outfitters, it's the same thing. So it was a combination of you shouldn't say it at all because right now we're going through a racial reckoning and we want to keep the focus on that. And there was a underlying element of anti-Semitism or discomfort with Jews at all yep. because there's some perspective in at least part of the community that Jews are part of the problem. Yes, and I think that there was an envy too among certain white people who felt like for me to say something like that is to kind of excuse myself out of the conversation. To there were there were a lot of I, I remember following that I was having 
a lot of forthright conversations at a very awkward time about whether or not Jews really identify as white. And that was very incendiary for people. And I think for a lot of white people who had extremely emotional reactions to me, they felt as though I was trying to say Jews aren't part of this problem. Jews are closer to black and brown people in this story than white Americans. It was a difficult time to be having those conversations and it just immediately sent a signal out to people who didn't even want, again, didn't want to ask questions, were too afraid to, didn't even want to dialogue, just saw it as, this person is a simple ally, this person is problematic. And because I was problematic, I was blacklisted and I was I became persona non grata in my industry. And all this comes about in a time when the pandemic puts so much energy online and people are anxious to begin with, and in the aftermath of uh, the uh, George Floyd uh, murder. So the feelings, the passions are magnified and intensified during this period when you release this tweet. Yeah, it was a time in which emotion ruled over logic. I learned this from years of being a music journalist and getting into hot water there. Don't tweet something out of emotion, but make sure that what you're tweeting is something rooted in deep logical and rational sense. And unfortunately, we were living in a time then when people just simply weren't able to do that. It was Everyone was outraged at every moment of the day. Everyone was terrified and everyone was being led by emotion and by fear. And it was very hard to have a sober, logical conversation with someone that was maybe intellectually meatier. So you release this tweet and then is there a uh, wave that kind of develops and crashes over you? What happens then? It was always ebbs and flows. I would say that over the past couple of years, there have been real rock bottoms. And then, I mean, I have had some awful days and some awful seasons online where I've said something and it's, it's made me public enemy number one again. But mostly I just continued to go on with it. And also because I was really establishing myself as a voice for Jewish people at a time in which people were crying out for one, I let, I let my energy into that. I go where I'm wanted <laughs> and I could see where I was needed. And I, my, my DMs were flooding every day with Jews from all over the country, from all over the world, in fact, saying, I'm so ecstatic to, to see someone out here saying all the things I'm too scared to say. And I knew that I had to just keep going. And also I had so much to say and I'd survived Corbynism and I'd been through all of that and I'd fought that fight in the UK. So I also felt this sense of responsibility. I remember there being a brief window of time after Jeremy Corbyn lost the election when I thought to myself, oof, well, thank goodness I'm never going to have to do that again. And, you know, the second this starts up in America, because inevitably it will, I, that someone else can handle that. But then when all of this started here, I just felt this deep responsibility, especially because the establishment seemed so incapable of really grabbing the bull by the horns. And also because I didn't see the leadership here that I saw in the UK. I see a lot of disparate, disparate people here, there and everywhere. And, and I really just, I felt like I couldn't get off the horse yet. I felt like I had, I was really, that was just my preparatory race for what was to come. And I kept going all the way up until the um, conflict between Israel and Hamas last May. 
And that's when, that's when I had another one of my watershed moments online where I wrote an article for the tablet called The Social Media Pogrom. And I reflected on this very strange anomaly that was happening for Jews online in which we were trying to put out factual information that could challenge all of the disinformation that was being released about Israeli apartheid and genocide and and the even just the facts of the con- of, of this current conflict and misinformation about the Iron Dome and and misinformation about Sheikh Jarrah and and all of it we found ourselves being banned or our posts being disabled um or taken down for violating community guidelines in which we were just posting facts. So all of this was happening and we were so overwhelmed by the David and Goliath fight of the small faction of Jewish people who exist online and are also prepared to fight the narrative versus the unseemly wealth of the false information and the great lie about Israel and all of the anti-Zionism and looking at the sheer volume of followers that a couple of influencers who were posting in horrible anti-Semitic information that eclipsed the Jewish population alive globally several times over. So I wrote this piece about that and it really upset certain people. In your industry or? Everywhere. Because people were, first of all, people were really upset about the language. People were really upset that I called it a pogrom. They were very quick to to not understand. I think they just wanted to harness the fact that, that it could be interpreted as me not being figurative. They read Jewish uh, magazines? They read it because I wrote it and they, <laughs> and they wanted to attack me, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, suddenly Tablet got a lot of new readers that week. Because our problem is often uh, how to get more people to read more Jewish stuff online. Sure, we got a lot of people interested that week. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I wrote this piece and then this it had this huge reaction online. And that day, I, in the opening gambit for the piece, I talked about my hate name that had started. To, I, I had this new hate name that suddenly people were pelting all of my tweets when I was talking about Israel. And it's E. Fartlow, it's very juvenile. And I mentioned it in the opening gambit. The day that that piece was published, my hate name was trending at number two nationwide. There was something like 40,000 tweets sent at me using my hate name. I, I don't believe that there's such a thing as bad press, but that attention for my industry was really awful because what E. Fartlow represented to them was someone who'd become a social pariah, someone who was attached to libels such as she's a racist, she's a turf, she's a genocidal, bloodthirsty, warmongering ethnic cleanser. All of these things were wrapped up in the hate name of E. Fartlow. And because of that, no one wanted to touch me with a barge pole. But what was curious wasn't just the I stopped being part of my industry and people took me off their mailing lists and I didn't, I no longer was followed by all of my former peers and colleagues. It's also just really heartbreaking that no one like reached out to me to say, 
hey, I'm am I like misunderstanding something? Or I know you. We've been on a tour bus and lived on it together for a week. I spent a weekend at Coachella in your tent with you. You know, like people I've known for a decade, and yet none of them really. None of them reached out and just said, "Try again, didn't want to have the conversation. And there's only so much that you can give the benefit of the doubt to people of being too scared or nervous or uncertain that they're going to offend by asking a question before you realize that there is a theme going on here. And, and why is it that they can't approach the subject of anti-Semitism? Why is there such discomfort around that? What's going on? Oh, perhaps what you're told and taught since you're yay high is that the world is actually anti-Semitic and it's a lot more prevalent than you want to believe. Is that what you believe now? I do, yeah. I really do. Does that surprise you or disappoint you? It doesn't surprise me. Did you expect to see that? I mean, you know, in England or in the UK, it's a small, as you said, it's a small Jewish community and there's a tradition of ambivalent feelings towards Jews. But the reputation in the United States is that this is a free, open, welcoming society that has embraced Jews extraordinarily in an unprecedented way in terms of Jewish history. Sure. So does it surprise you that you have experienced, just in terms of the anti-Semitism that you're talking about, that you're experiencing that here in the States? I think people want me to tell them that anti-Semitism is worse in Europe. I, I, I think genuinely, I think that's what people want to hear from me because they, they want to hear that maybe my more um, prescient reaction to anti-Semitism here is because I'm trying to prevent something from happening here that I experienced before. But the truth of the matter is that I think that the conversation has been so not allowed to happen here and Jews have so contributed to it by being so assimilated as to no longer even recognize what anti-Semitism is that in many ways I find the anti-Semitism in America to be far scarier than what I grew up with in Europe because it was more overt there and it was more understood as anti-Semitism. Here it's intellectualized and, and excused away. And I'm not saying that that isn't something that happens in France and in England and in Ireland and, you know, in all of these other places where anti-Semitism is rife. But there's something deeply uncomfortable about holding these two truths at once. How can America be the greatest assimilation project for Jews in the diaspora and then also have such a dastardly anti-Semitism problem that is only rising year on year. So let me ask you, Mm. now looking back, do you have any regrets? No, zero. And I always say that. And I mean that truthfully, because I had a really good run. I had an amazing time. And I have only fond memories of everything, everyone I ever interviewed, every piece I ever wrote. I, I lived to the nth degree that life. I, I did not, I never took it for granted. I pinched myself every day. I would find myself walking home from the office when I worked at NME over London Bridge at night. I would well up. I would I, Every single day, I felt the magnitude of being able to live in that experience. For all intents and purposes, I was living my dream life and doing my dream job. But it's also extremely difficult when the tides of socio-political culture change And it's like when you go from being a kid in elementary school into high school and then to college and things just change. Things just, they don't remain the same. And it's not just because of the way I've been treated by the music industry. 
But it's because of the way I see this community I used to exist in, who had all of the same values as me, really liberal, really accepting, trying to create a more diverse space, a more equal space, proliferate different types of art from different people so everyone's story could be told. I believed in that full throttle and I was part of it and I was part of creating something beautiful and progressing that and changing the face of what it looked like. And when that space became one that, by the same stretch, couldn't accommodate what I was saying about one facet of my identity, my relationship to that whole idea changed. It became like a sham. And... And I didn't believe in it. it. It took some of the shine off it. I took, it tarnished it. And I, I didn't really know whether or not people were actually on the same team as me anymore. And it changed my relationship, not just with writing about, about music, but just with the music itself. I found what's very curious for me is that I don't even really enjoy, you know, I was a specialist in new music. I was, I was a tastemaker. I used to break bands and tell you who the next biggest pop star was going to be. And I just don't have, I couldn't have gone a day without searching online for the next big thing. You know, it was like a drug. What's going to be the next big thing? And just like listening to new music was that too for me. And I had to satiate that need all the time. And I really don't, miss that at all I don't have a desire I don't connect to a lot of new music right now I've been listening to a lot of older music from decades previous that I feel a lot more drawn to at the moment and I think it's because it's divorced from this cultural moment right now that I feel as though I've been pushed out of and I know that a lot of Jews feel the same way so no I don't have any regrets you know and I have to be careful saying this because people can take it and run with it and then create a lot of hurt for themselves but I think that hurt is temporary I don't think you can ever regret being honest ever because you can't make any progress towards protecting yourself honoring yourself getting what you want in life unless you're honest about it and you you put it out into the world because no one's going to speak for you no one's going to jump into your mouth and say the words for you. You have to be the master of your own ship. And that requires a degree of honesty. And I will, as long as what I, I can stand by what I've said, I do not regret the, the consequences of that speech because the reality is that actually it's out of my hands do you have a message to, you know, your generation in terms of what you've learned and what you would like to urge them? Yeah, I do. Don't be afraid of who you are and what you love and care about. There's no shame in being a Jew and being a Zionist and being a Jew who has a great affinity to Israel and understands why the Jews are deserving of their own nation and why it exists and what it takes to continue to protect that state at all costs. Never be ashamed of advocating for that because you're Jewish and you have a right to self-determine in your in your homeland. But the second part of it is that in order to be robust enough to deal with speaking out about Israel, especially if you're a young Jew, I can't urge the importance of having a sense of community around you because 
you are going to have losses. You are going to lose friends and you are going to lose certain opportunities and it's not going to make any sense and it's going to be painful and horrible. But if you surround yourself with like-minded people who can help you in your advocacy because they feel the same way and they've studied too and they know the facts and they know how to dispel some myths in five seconds flat, they will be only too happy to stand side by side with you and do that because we're all part of the same tribe and it's an amazing thing. And one of the things that I have come to really value in this fight over the years are the few people that I can rely on who understand the experience and who know what it's like to go through this. And I would say to anyone that's thinking about doing this work, that is one of the greatest insurance policies that you can have. And I don't know that I could have been doing any of this if I didn't have that behind-the-scenes support network that carries me through some of the worst moments of this. Eve, it's been a, uh, an honor for us to host you and a great pleasure. Keep up the good work. As we uh, say in Jewish tradition, may you go from strength to strength. Thank you so much, Rabbi. What an uplifting conversation. Eve Barlow is an inspiration. She's on the front lines, in the trenches, directly facing vicious opponents on a daily basis. And she does so with the courage, aplomb, and acceptance that is rare and admirable. As she told us, there were days when she had 40,000 hate tweets, tsunamis of animus. We owe her and those like her our strongest support. I urge you to subscribe to her substack called Blacklisted, first to learn from her, and second to express your encouragement. You'll be helping Eve continue her Zionist and pro-Israel advocacy. Eve recounted her experiences. She said about the historical moment that we're in now. People were terrified of not just stating what they thought, but asking a question. If you get to a point in society where people are simply wanting to ask a question and feeling like they can't, that's really not okay. That's a sign, of, to me, of an unhealthy society. You can't fight one form of hate with another form of hate. She's right. I want to give some perspective from Jewish tradition. Our entire culture is based upon asking questions. Our sacred texts explode with disagreements. You can hardly even open one page of Talmud without encountering numerous debates over seemingly minor matters, most of which are unresolved, left to future generations to continue to argue about. Judaism is emphatic. Social interaction should be governed by reason, argument, persuasion, logic, evidence, and proof. The prophet Isaiah urges, come, let us reason together. Reflexive dismissal of another opinion is contrary to everything we've been taught for thousands of years. The assumption that no one person, one group, one political party, one class, one association, one professor, one rabbi has a monopoly on truth is at the center of Judaism. The Jewish way taught and retaught for thousands of years is that we grow, we get smarter, we improve by learning from and interacting with those who are different. Diversity is a good thing in Judaism. This classically Jewish approach was, until recently, the fundamental assumption of Western liberalism as well. 
universities, media, authors, playwrights, screenwriters, they used to insist that free inquiry, free expression, the ability to freely research and promote a broad spectrum of opinions, that these are at the center of Western tradition. The mob that verbally assaults Eve Barlow online and the strict discipline to conform that it seeks to impose on the community is contrary to everything we believe in as Jews and as Americans. And I say this as a liberal rabbi, one who has been committed to liberal principles for decades. When people who call themselves liberal no longer commit to and insist upon liberal discipline, America really is in trouble. I agree with Eve. It's a sign of an unhealthy society. There's something fearful about those who tell us that they have discovered the answer to everything. They simmer with the flames of hubris and boil with the heat of certainty that liquefies reason. Even the most brilliant of us see the world only in fragments. People prone to all-inclusive theories are not usually in search of truth. They are in search of themselves. If liberty means anything at all, wrote George Orwell, it's the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. All absolutisms are dangerous, whether from the right or the left. Fundamentalisms flourish in both religious and secular settings. Here's the thing about fundamentalists. Whether they're religious or secular, they assume that the other side is vapid, filled with unbelievers. They wrap themselves in garments of virtue while presuming that everyone else is morally naked, stripped of values. Stand up for yourselves. As Eve said, so much of what is online about Jews and Israel is unseemly false information and a great lie about Israel. Don't be afraid of who you love and what you care about. Understand what it means to have a Jewish state and what it takes to protect it. Never be ashamed to protect Israel. I say amen to that. Do not give in to the mob. Do not be intimidated. Kneel before no one. You have to be your own master. Be like Eve. Till next time, this is In These Times. <laughs>